Paul. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Isn't Jesus awesome? He is better than anything the world offers. And he's, he, he's satisfying. He gives us hope. He's merciful. He's sufficient. He's powerful. If you don't know Jesus, we really want you to know him personally. I know I grew up in a church where we knew about him. We didn't read the Bible, but we went through the motions. And then I came to a church where we just learned from the Bible, just like this. There's nothing special about us. We just happen to believe the Bible's God's word. And Jesus spoke of his words that give life. And he said, if you lift me up, I'll draw all men to myself. And we're grateful that Jesus is bringing people to himself. So if you're new here, you're visiting with us, you're so welcome here. If you don't have a Bible, we have people coming at this point. If you have a Bible, just raise your hand if you need one. But if you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 5. We're, we're learning how to read the Bible together. We're learning how to grow as Christians. We're learning the simple message of the grace of God, that God offers full forgiveness to those who repent and believe in Christ. And then he changes us into his image. A couple quick things I want to announce. First of all, this Wednesday night, there's nothing in the Bible that says celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, as the world would say, Turkey Day. But the Bible's full of be thankful to the Lord. And so we set aside Wednesday night before Thanksgiving as our special Thanksgiving Eve service. It's at 7 p.m. We do have child care for the younger ones up through kindergarten. So hopefully you can join us just to, to worship and give thanks to the Lord in a special way. Secondly, um, it's so exciting to see what God's doing in the Middle East. If you're interested in learning more about this, at, at 11 o'clock over in the Woodside Room, uh, we're having another taste of the Middle East. So there's Middle Eastern food, but a chance to learn more about it and to find out how you can get involved. Doesn't mean you have to go to the Middle East, but I know that you'll want to celebrate God's work and learn more about and perhaps participate in, in a deeper way. And then finally, two things concerning our women's ministry. As many of you know, we have a women's ministry outreach coming up on Monday, December 3rd at 7 o'clock. We have the capacity to seat 240 women. At this point, we already have 100, I'm sorry, 210 signed up. We have 30 slots left. That's it. So if you are interested, we would encourage you to register today in the lobby or online. There's, there's a waiting list after that. So please do that. And we also encourage you to bring a friend, somebody who, who maybe doesn't go to church or used to go to church to come and hear the message of Christ and be praying for that. And then also the women's retreat is coming up in March. There's information on registration at the table as well as online. All right, we're in James chapter 5. We're studying the book of James because James is teaching us what real religion looks like, the true test, the rubber meets the road. And so we're learning that it's the easy part about being a Christian is saying you're a Christian, All right? That's the easy part. The Bible calls it confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord. The real part is whether you live it out. And there are a whole lot of people who think they're a Christian who Jesus would say, no, you're not a Christian. I never knew you. Now, that's not designed to scare people who are Christians. It's designed to, to say, listen, we need to think about what does true faith look like? It's not just I raised my hand and said a prayer. And so James has explored all different areas of, the, of, of life to say, if you say you have Christian faith, this is what it should look like. This morning, James is going to talk about possessions. He's going to talk about money. Now, remember, James heard what Jesus taught. And so he was familiar how often Jesus spoke about money 
And Jesus didn't pull punches when it came to the subject of money because wealth in itself is not wrong, but it's dangerous. It's going to be a good slave or a bad master. And last week we saw how true faith avoids self-inflated activities like, hey, I'm going to arrogantly boast. I'm going to go make a bunch of money. And it also avoids that self-sufficient activity like, I don't need the Lord. I could just, I got this. This morning, James is going to continue with the subject of money, but he is going to unload on rich people. I mean, he just blasts them. So I want to qualify a couple of things. Number one here, this is not all rich people. He's not saying, now listen, if you're rich, you're going to hell. There's a context here. These people in James' day were apparently very wealthy landowners. And this isn't the first time it happens today. It's happened all throughout history. People exploit and oppress the less fortunate because the less fortunate, particularly poor, don't have the means to resist. And so there's always going to be on earth sinful people who will manipulate and oppress others in their selfish desire to stockpile for themselves, whether it's in the corporate world where you climb over others, you, 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 you run over grandma with the bus to get to the top. So what was happening in this particular church is that wealthy people, and we don't know, some of them might even have been Christians, were oppressing and dishonoring poor people. In James chapter 2, he said, didn't God choose the poor of this world? But the rich are the ones who are oppressing you and personally drag you into court. And then James is going to give an example of poor people getting ripped off. And in this case, it looks like it was poor Christians who were getting ripped off. So as James begins this section, he's going to remind us, don't let possessions lead to destruction. Like, he's graphic here. The dangers of, number one, stockpiling. Jesus often talked about that. Don't just store up your treasures. Number two, the danger of suppression, where, where you're, going to, you're going to use your power, your money, and influence to put people down and to exploit them. And then the danger of self-indulgence. Jesus says, yeah, you lived the party life. You had it real nice, but things are going to change. There's going to be a radical role reversal when you die. So let's pray, and we'll look at this. Father, thank you for your words, and we pray that the Spirit of God will teach us as we learn to read the Bible together. It's not just for priests or pastors or theologians. It's for all of us to live out, to believe the Bible you didn't give us just to give us information, but practical transformation. May the Holy Spirit help us to apply the Word of God. We all need to hear this, whether we're rich or poor. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we're going to learn this morning is that James is going to denounce the evil. He's going to say, hey, listen here, you evil, wealthy people, I want you to envision your destruction. Like sometimes this whole idea of visualization, you know, there's, there's, there's people who will teach, even in athletics, you know, visualize winning, right? James goes, I want, I want you to have a visual picture of what's awaiting you. I want you to picture yourself in hell. And you're like, wow, that's pretty graphic. But Jesus didn't, didn't hesitate to say that. Jesus was very, very specific as he spoke about hell, where, where, where the flames do not quench where the worm does not die out 
where the smoke of men's torment causes them to cry out for mercy. So James goes, if you're evil and you're wealthy, he says, think about your coming destruction. And then he's going to say, and now I'm going to tell you why that's going to happen. So let's look in the first three verses where he, he calls them, very much like the Old Testament prophet. Now the question here is, is he talking, he can't be talking to Christians, so why would he, in a letter to believers, call out rich unbelievers? Good question here. They, they might not even have been in the attendance of the Christian fellowship, but he still calls out the wealthy, and, and I want to answer that in a moment, but let's look at verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, plural, miseries which are coming upon you. So envision what's coming. Now please, he's not condemning wealth. It's these people who were misusing their wealth. These are evil. Not all wealthy people are evil, but many of them are. And few of them have time for Jesus. Jesus said that. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in answering the question, why would he denounce unbelievers in a letter to Christians? This is what John Calvin said. He said, because he wanted the faithful Christians to hear of the miserable end of these rich people who were oppressing them. So number one, the Christians would not envy their fortune and knowing that God was going to avenge the wrongs they suffered. They might continue with a, resolve, a resigned mind just to be able to endure this. So there were Christians who were really getting jerked around, the poor, right? And hearing this passage would help them to say, all right, that's what they're doing now. There's nothing I can do about it. But, but God's, got, God's got me on this. At the same time, this would be a message that unbelievers need to hear. So I want to qualify really quick here. It's not wrong to be rich. Okay, I'm going to say that over and over again. But it's dangerous. It can be self-indulging. It can lead to shady dealings. Jesus actually said even Christians, after they hear the word of God, the deceitfulness of riches comes in and chokes out the word. Riches can lead to arrogance. The Bible says, instruct those who are wealthy not to be conceited. Riches can lead to misplaced hope. I got this. The Bible says, instruct people who are rich not to hope in the uncertainty of riches. And then finally, we learn from Scripture that riches don't satisfy. And I know we all go, money doesn't make you happy. But deep down, we need to remind ourselves, it's really not what we think. I'd like to find out the hard way. I know I'm not happy, but I'm cruising along. I'm not happy, all right? Jesus said a man's life does not consist of his possessions. And if you don't believe that, just look at the media and see what's going on with some of the most wealthy Hollywood, you know, famous people. How, how, how's that working for them? So notice he sounds like an Old Testament prophet here. Weep and howl. That's what the prophets used to, as they denounced the wicked oppressors, they would tell them, you better weep and howl. I remember once talking to an older man in a parking lot at, at Giant once, and, and as we were engaging the gospel, he goes, I know I'm going to hell. And I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, I do. I know I'm going to hell. I said, no, you don't. You don't believe that for a minute. He goes, yes, I do. I said, if you truly believed that you were going to hell and you pictured that pit of fire and you were about to plop into it, you would be screaming to God for mercy. And that's what he's saying here, weep and howl. 
Why? Look at verse 2. Well, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted. Now, this is probably simply what Jesus used to teach. He goes, what's the point of stockpiling all your stuff on earth? Don't lay up your treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal, moths eat, and it rusts and corrupts, corrodes rather. My wife and I, when we went to seminary, we lived in a little apartment in, in the hood of Dallas. I managed 12 units. 11 of them got robbed, right? But we never got robbed. And then, when I graduated, I became a pastor in the suburbs of Irving. Nice area. Now we're, we're, we, we moved on up. We, 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 we're in Beverly Hills. You ready for this? We got robbed. Everything. They even stole my phone. I'm like, come on, my phone for Pete's sake. Back then we had these little cords on the phone. Everything. And I was reminded of this very passage. Don't lay up your treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal. Now, interestingly, James says your gold and silver has rusted. And we pull James aside. James, you know, I don't want to call you ignorant, but gold and silver don't rust. Come on, James. He knows that, right? It's figurative. It comes out of an Old Testament passage. The prophets frequently denounce the oppressive rich. Read the book of Amos. Even an intertestamental book called First Enoch said this. <clears throat> um, let me find the quote. Oh, I lost it. I'll get it. Don't worry about it right now. Let me give you Jesus' quote. He said, Woe to the rich now. For you're receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well-fed now. You shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So when James says your gold and silver have rusted, notice what he says. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. What, what does he mean by that? Well, here's my quote. From, from, this is from the intertestamental period. It said, lose your silver for the sake of a brother or friend. Don't let it rust under a stone. Lay up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High. So, so if, 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 if we all die with a boatload of money and we haven't been sharing any of our money with others, that in itself is going to testify. You spent your whole life stockpiling your stuff and there were other people in need and you didn't help them. And that's going to be a witness against you. And then he says, and by the way, you're doing that in the last days. I don't want you to miss that. The New Testament uses the word last days very different from how a lot of Christians do. And so I want you to be taught on this. I want you to understand. When the Bible speaks of the last days, right, the last days began when Jesus came. So when you hear people say, beloved, we're in the last days, we ought to step back and say, we've been in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. God spoke many times in the past to the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. But the end of the last days is when God decisively intervenes to bring his people judgment. I mean, to bring unbelievers judgment. And so the early Christians understood this. They believed that they were living in an indefinite error, like the last days has begun. And Jesus could come at any time. So it's not like suddenly now he can come. Finally he can come. That's the point. He could come at any time. Now, I can imagine the rich people going, what? 
Are you crazy? Why would I be going to hell? Why is this going to gnaw me like fire? Well, there's four reasons James is going to give us for why the wealthy are headed for destruction. The first one's found in verse 3a. They were stockpiling instead of sharing. He says, in the last days you have stored up your treasure. What does he mean by that? You have stored up your treasure. Well, there's nothing wrong with saving, and I would encourage you to carefully save. But if you're saving to the exclusion of giving, you've got a big problem. I remember once hearing Charles Barkley say, hey, yeah, I gamble. This was on television, and I gamble millions of dollars. But, you know, people criticize me about it. I lost millions. He goes, but it's my money. And I thought to myself, wow, he has no idea that if God has entrusted him with millions of dollars, yeah, it's sort of your money, and it could have been a wonderful resource to share and help people. But if you just stockpiled it for yourself, man, I wouldn't want to answer to God. But there's a second reason. When you have resources, there's always going to be opportunities to help poor people, right? So James says the second reason that you're going to go to hell is they suppress the poor instead of supporting the poor. Look, look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the, the laborers, the workers, who mowed your fields, which was withheld by you. What? It was withheld by you? Yeah. It cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In the Bible, sometimes when a crime was committed, something that was inanimate, an object, was, was personified. Remember when Cain killed Abel? God said, the blood of Abel cries out, okay, and testifies against you. Here, we have to understand, in, in this culture, right, think about this. Many of those people lived literally, and I mean literally, from hand to mouth. They did not have refrigerators. They did not have any food. And when they prayed, give us this day our daily bread, they meant it. Because if I don't go to work today and get paid today, I won't be able to feed my kids. In fact, God had put in place in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. So these were daily laborers who were just getting paid for one day's work, and that's it. Nothing in savings. You just come home, you got a little money, and you buy enough flour for your wife to make some bread or you to make some bread to feed your kids. Deuteronomy 24. Don't take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he's a brother or even an alien. Pay him his wages each day before sunset. Because he's poor and he's counting on it. Ready for this? Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. That's way back in Deuteronomy. This is exactly what they're doing. You better pay these guys on time. This is, this is life and death for them. Malachi pick, picked up later on this theme. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi saw this going on in Malachi 3. He said to these people who were oppressing the poor, suppressing them. I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against you, adulterers and perjurers, 
against those who defraud laborers of their wages. You oppress widows and fatherless. You deprive aliens of justice, but you don't fear me, says the Lord. I mean, think about how many people in America that have a lot of money could care less about God and, frankly, could care less about anybody else. They'll fight, as I said, grandmom over this. Talk to any funeral director. You thought there, where there's a will, there's a way. You know what a funeral director told me? Where there's a will, there's relatives fighting, right? People can be ruthless. And what's unfortunate is when you have money, you can use that money to take advantage of poor people. We talk about things like slumlords, right? Things like that. And, and what can poor people do? They, they can't even afford a lawyer. There's nothing they can do about it, right? But boy, as they were doing this, when people cry out to God, and God sees that, you know, God hates certain things. The Bible says there's six things that God hates, seven that are abomination. Read that in chapter 6 of Proverbs sometime. But notice what it says. It doesn't say God hears it. It says their outcry reached the ears of who? The Lord of Sabaoth. Now, if you don't know what that means, the word Sabaoth means hosts or armies. The Lord of the armies. This is one of God's names. If you've never learned how to study the names of God. Look in the bookstore, go online, and, and, and read some things about the names of God, El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh. But in this case, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, was a title that, that some of the prophets used. And, and, and particularly when you needed God to be on your side, the Lord of the armies would come. It, it kind of reminds me of what Jesus said. Remember when Jesus was being tried and and Peter pulls out his sword. He's like, you want some of this? And Jesus is like, put that away. He goes, I could call for legions of angels, right? And so Martin Luther, at a time when, when the Roman Catholic Church was severely oppressing him and threatening to kill him, he, he writes this wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he says, although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. And he writes, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and his kingdom is forever. So this is a two-edged sword. If you're living for the Lord, you got Lord Sabaoth on your side. If you're living to exploit other people, the Lord of hosts is coming to get you. What you're going to do when he comes for you. So... That's kind of like, wow, I don't want to be one of those people. Third, he says, another reason why you should envision going to hell and being destroyed is because you're living your life for your own pleasure instead of relieving others' pain. You're like, what? What are you, a, a stoic? What, what's wrong with pleasure? There's nothing wrong with pleasure, okay? God's not up in heaven going, if you were a Christian, don't have fun. Just be holy, right? The Bible says God has created all things to be gratefully enjoyed by those who believe. But remember we talked about this word hedon, hedonism, this obsession with pleasure. And trust me, we live at a time where as Americans, we're obsessed with pleasure. So let, let's look at verse 5. He says, 
<clears throat> you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. So does that mean, Pastor Tom, I can't have fun? I can't watch a football game? I can't, can't go on a vacation? I can't go to the beach? Can't go out to eat? Of course not. But what he is condemning is a sinful, self-indulgent lifestyle. If you're dropping down money like it's your job on your stuff, right? And yet knowing there are others around you in pain and not dropping down anything for them, man, I wouldn't want to be you. You get the Stubby Award. Stinks to be you. Would stink to be me, right? Reminds me of Luke 16 when Jesus said, there was a rich man who lived sumptuously every day in splendor, the best clothes, the best food, but a poor man was laid at his gate. And the implication is he saw that poor man every day as he backed his chariot out. He's like, oh, that dirtbag, that homeless guy is still in my driveway. Oh, ew, look at those filthy dogs. And Jesus is like, you, you, this dude just wanted the crumbs from your table and you gave him nothing. And so as Americans, you're like, well, I don't have a whole lot to spare. I think we all have a whole lot more to spare than we realize. And so I'm not suggesting that we all go and sell everything and become homeless. But man, this presses home. Like, what are we doing with our stuff? Are, are we simply living for our own pleasure? This word Paul used in 1 Timothy 5, when he spoke of, back then, widows had no way to support themselves. And so if a widow had no children to support her, she was to be added to a church registry where she almost came on staff as a woman of prayer. But Paul spoke of widows and he said, but if, if widows just give themselves, same word, to this wanton pleasure, he said, they're dead even while they live. Wow. He's talking about Christians. It's possible for a Christian to be dead even while he lives because all you're doing is consuming and self-inverted, and boy, going to the mall to go shopping, for what? I don't know, when I get there, it'll be, I'll get my bling on, and, and just everything's about us, planning the next vacation, right? No concern for others, no prayer, no generosity. In fact, perhaps you, you, you don't remember this, but God was not angry with Sodom and Gomorrah simply because of their homosexual behavior. In Ezekiel, 16, verse 49, this is what God said about the people of Sodom. There was moolah in Sodom and Gomorrah, lots of wealthy people. That's why Lot was living there, not because Lot was, was practicing homosexuality. The Bible says his righteous soul was tormented by what he saw, but he loved the lifestyle of luxury. And so in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, God said, the people of Sodom are overfed and unconcerned. Wow. He says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth. Well, isn't that what life is? I only got a little time. So many girls, so little time. There's, what? We're here on this earth as aliens and strangers as Christians. This world's not our home. It's not about how much fun we get to have. We have this little opportunity to be praying and winning souls to Christ and working for the Lord. Doesn't mean, as I said, we have to be be terribly stoic, but we need to think this through. Am I living for my own pleasure? 
The Bible actually says in the last days, men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Why aren't churches packed on Sunday morning? Every church, why is preaching the gospel? Why aren't they packed on Sunday morning? They packed it out after 911 for a few weeks until things settle down again. And then the last reason, the fourth reason, is because they literally were oppressing believers. See, here's the deal. Most unbelievers know this. Christians aren't going to fight back because their pansy leader Jesus told them, turn the other cheek. <sighs> Losers. James says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous. He does not resist you. Now, wait a minute. Is he being literal here? You literally put to death the righteous? Maybe. Remember back in chapter 4, he says, you lust and you cannot have, so you commit murder? Maybe they took him to court, had the death sentence by accusing them of blasphemy. Interestingly, some people think when it says you put to death the righteous man that everyone knew that there was one guy at that time, he doesn't mention his name, but, quote, the righteous guy. We all know what you did to that one guy, like, like Jesus spoke of his faithful witness Antipas in the book of Revelation. But you know what others have suggested? How about this? Who else would this be talking about? You have put to death the righteous. Jesus, right? Peter wasn't afraid to look the Jews in the eye and say, you killed him by the hands of godless men. But I think here in general, he's simply saying, you oppressed believers. But I like what he adds, and they did not resist you. So just a quick reminder, yeah, people are going to mess with you if you're a believer. They find out you're a Christian, they're going to just not like you. I actually, my wife and I had someone say, my husband hates you because you're Christians, right? So you're like, yeah, you, well, you, you, let me, let me. I'm going to give you a reason to hate me. And Jesus is going, no, quite the opposite. The call of Christians, and it's hard, this is not easy. The call of Christians is to be passive towards those who oppress us for Christ. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't protect your family, stand up for yourself. But if you are being punished or persecuted for the name of Christ, I know we live in a country of God, guns, and guts. Let them come get me for Jesus. I'll shoot them all up. I'm going, stop that. That is not what the Bible teaches. If people came at me or you for the name of Christ, we are not to resist them. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus did. The Bible says you and I have been called for this very purpose. Jesus left us an example. We're to follow in his footsteps. Who suffered when he was reviled? He did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to God. And so it's a reminder. It's not easy. But to love our enemies, to pray for them, to not attack and retaliate against those who come at us because we're Christians. So, you're like, well, jeez, that was a downer. Brother Allen, you've really been, can't you give us something positive, encouraging? I've got to go put Caleb on again, you know? So let, let's talk about, let's talk about as a pastor, right? The Bible's not just information. The Bible says read the word, teach the word, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So, so I'm speaking to me now, I'm speaking to you. Number one, ask yourself, are you stockpiling? in excess of your sharing. 
And I don't care if you hardly make anything or if you make a whole boatload. Are you stockpiling in excess and not sharing? Remember I've used several times the giving ladder. We've talked about this. This is a fact. 50% of Christians in Bible preaching churches give nothing. If you're a Christian and you give nothing to the Lord, people say, oh, well, don't shame them. No, I, sh I should reprove them in love and say that's wrong. But you don't want to give because you're like, Mwah. the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. But I want to encourage you to think deeply about what are you doing to help people? Just basic things like moving towards a tithe in your church, giving regularly, meeting pressing needs. Many of you are doing a fantastic job. It's awesome. And, and we've seen some cool things here, God working. But, but you and I, and this is why I encourage people, you should keep a record of what you give. You're like, why? So that you can figure out, of what I made last year, how, what percentage did I give? Not so you can post it somewhere, so that you can think through and go, wow, I ended up, I thought I gave a lot more than 2%. So remember the giving ladder, moving up towards regular giving, and then towards tithing, and even beyond that. So ask yourself, are you stockpiling or sharing? You say, well, Pastor, why are you saying that? Because God told me. What, did he speak to you? Yes, right here. He said to Timothy and every pastor, instruct those who are rich in this present world. If you have been blessed with your finances, praise God. Number one, don't be conceited. Rich people are not always arrogant, but they're often arrogant. Don't be one of them if you're a Christian. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. Fix your hope on God. You don't have to get rid of everything. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's great. But my call as a pastor, instruct them to do good. So if all of us, in many ways, I think all of us as Americans have some sense of wealth, do good with it. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. When a dollar bill comes out of your wallet, is, you, is it going, oh, I haven't seen light for a long time. Because as you do that, you're storing up for yourselves the treasure for a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. If everybody in this church tithes, and it's not so Bob and I could get a new Beamer and get our TV show, it's not about that. We don't know who gives and we don't want to know. But think of how we could advance the gospel. We have constantly people trying to have support to take the gospel to places like the Middle East. All those people living in, in refugee camps, can we have more to give to them. Could we pay off our building, for example? I think we're down to 700,000 in our building. Could we pay off our building ahead of time? And then secondly, are you suppressing the poor? You're like, no, I'm not doing that. Okay, well, let's go a little broader. Are you sinning in any other way to get money? What are you talking about? You're talking to me? I'm from Philly. I'll give you one. If you're cheating on your taxes, you're sinning. Man, if I told the government what I really made, they'd take so much from me. The Bible says, submit to the government, pay your taxes. I can't afford that. I never met anybody who obeyed God and couldn't afford to. See, here's the danger of money. Being wealthy is not a sin. But look at verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Here's the issue. It's dangerous because it's tempting. There are many foolish and harmful desires Things like, how many hours do you have to work to get rich? Well, I got to work every Sunday. I got to work every one. I can't do any ministry. 
and how many shady deals and how many, you know, I don't suppress people, but, but we need to be thinking if in any way I'm, I'm getting money by sinning because the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And here's the problem. We long for it and then people wander from the faith. There are plenty of people who got a good start for Jesus, but they got preoccupied with money and now they're way out there. So, let's try by God's grace to be honest and not obsessed with money and not sinning to get money. Third, are you living for pleasure or for Jesus and others? Let's look at this passage real quick. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and then down in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But I love to go to the beach every weekend. There's nothing wrong with going to the beach every weekend unless you go to the beach every weekend and you just blow God off. But I love to watch television. There's nothing wrong with watching television. But if you're watching television, you don't have any time to pray or read your Bible. But I love well, there's nothing wrong with loving pleasure, but when it conflicts with loving God, when it conflicts with putting Jesus first, when someone needs your help, and you're like, yeah, but that would, you know, tonight's my, my, my night. You know, we all, it's my night, okay? And then finally, are you and I striving for contentment or consumed by covetousness? When is enough enough? Douglas Booth said this, in the Western world where storing up material wealth is not only condoned but admired, Christians need to come to grips with this point in James and ask ourselves seriously, when do we have too much? Let's look at a couple passages as we close real quick. The author of Proverbs said, two things I asked of you, Lord, don't refuse me. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that's my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be in want and profane the name of the Lord. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you had, for he said, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. You go, well, Pastor, how? I'm going I'm to let you in on a little secret. You can tell others this secret. How can I learn how to be content? I always want more stuff. I'll tell you a secret. Paul says, not that I speak for want, for I've learned to be content. How'd you learn, Paul? I know how to get along with little. I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret. Tell us the secret. Verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whenever God's asking us to change, whatever it is, let's get the secret out. I can't in my own strength but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I thought that just meant I can punch another guy out. I thought that was only for boxers. I'll beat him down through Christ who strengthens me. No, this is when it comes to applying God's word to my life. When God's calling me to change, this is hard. All I want is sex. All I want is money. All I want is this. And Paul's going, I know. You're not going to learn this overnight, but you can learn that the gospel is about changing through Christ's strength. I can do all things. So as we're going through James, and James is kind of beating us up, and we're going, I got to change. Don't be discouraged. Jesus is for me. 
And as I get on my knees and ask him to give me grace and strength, I can do all things through Christ. I can't give up this addiction. No, you can't, but you can through Christ. Could somebody say amen? Don't we believe that? Aren't we a hospital of he a healing community? If we took time, I, people would pop up all over the place and say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. So if you want to get on board with that, I, I couldn't let you go home without asking this question. Which path are you on? Jesus said there's only two ways, the broad road that leads to destruction or the narrow road that leads to eternal life. So for those of you who have been coming, you're listening, maybe you're from a different church background, you're like, this is intriguing, right? We constantly want to point you to Christ. We constantly want to invite you to come to Jesus. He will fully and freely forgive you now and give you eternal life. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to, 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 to grovel for his grace. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out. Go and preach the gospel and tell them there's full and free forgiveness to all who repent and believe in me. Whoever told you you can't know if you're going to heaven, they lied to you. The Bible says these things have been written so that you might know that you have eternal life. If you don't have any assurance of where you're going to spend eternity, come to Jesus this morning. The Bible says whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. If you get it, you know you're a sinner. You believe that Christ died for you. He didn't say, I paid my part. Now you go to purgatory. He said, I paid it all. It's finished. Come and his precious blood will wash your sins away. Believe in him. Just tell him, Lord Jesus, I'm willing to follow you. You got to change me. But I believe in you, Lord. And he will speak the word of life. And you will be forgiven. And you can do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. As a, as a church, may we be remarkably generous. Thank you so much. We're, we're full of generous people. And we, of all people, are blessed. Lord, may you help us to freely give. We pray for all those on this earth who are poor and oppressed. We can't help everybody, but we certainly can help somebody. Lord, thank you. I pray especially for those who are are hurting and in need today that we might be able to reach out and bless them and for those who have not yet come to christ i urge you talk to us talk to someone before you leave and say i want to i want to become a follower of christ i want to be forgiven we pray these things for your glory and look forward to gathering this wednesday night to thank you corporately as a church family thank you for our riverstone family in jesus name amen